Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Animals to the Max podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate you listening to the show today. All right, so I want to tell you guys a story. I was driving a few weeks ago and I got a call from an out-of-state number and it's just, I normally don't answer those because I just get so much spam calls, you know, so I'm just like, up, oh, decline. I get a voicemail from this unidentified number And I listen to the voicemail and my jaw completely drops. It is a voicemail from Joel Satori. He is a famous National Geographic photographer, speaker, author, conservationist. He is a super famous guy. I actually have been trying to get Joel on this podcast for years, but this guy is busy traveling the world and photographing so many different types of animals. So I literally get a voicemail and it says, hey, this is Joel Satori from the National Geographic. I hear you might have some animals that I might want to photograph. Would you just give me a call if you're interested and I remember I was in like horrible reception because I live out in the middle of the boonies in Idaho and I remember sending him a text right away being like hey Joel super interested in horrible reception let me get you know let me call you back when I'm you know finally in an area where I can actually make a phone call so I was so excited and I jumped at the opportunity to talk to Joel Sartori and possibly work with him Joel Satori has been doing something for the National Geographic for the past several years, and that is creating the Photo Arc. The Photo Arc is a collection of images of a variety of different species of animals around the world, and Joel is trying to use this Photo Arc to raise awareness. And there's, I think the goal is around 20,000 species to photograph. So far, Joel has photographed 11,500 different species of animals, and he asked to photograph a couple of mine and it just you guys it was just a dream come true it turns out this blew my mind one of the animals that I've had for oh my goodness well over a decade his name is Irwin named after the great Steve Irwin and he is a monkey-tailed skink also called the Solomon Island tree skink also called the prehensile-tailed skink anyway it turns out that Irwin is actually quite rare And he is a very rare subspecies of Solomon Island tree skink that you don't see too often in captive populations. So it turns out this lizard that I've had for well over a decade is this super rare animal that was photographed for the National Geographic. I mean, are you kidding me? It's like when you think you know somebody. It's like having a really good friend and then finding out later in life, like, hey, by the way, did you know I'm super famous? Like your friend telling that to you. It just, it blew my mind. So Joel took photos of Irwin, my Solomon Island tree skate. And he also took a photo of one of my tarantulas. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast, but back in January of 2019, I rescued six tarantulas out of a Boise basement. And one of those tarantulas turned out to be a tarantula that Joel was interested in. And that was the blue Panay tarantula from the Philippines. So I had such a good time working with Joel. So listen to this. In exchange for meeting up with Joel and allowing him to photograph my animals, which I would have done anyways, 
I asked him in person. I said, hey, Joel, would you come on my podcast, Animals to the Max? And he was like, well, I mean, I guess I owe you something. You drove all the way into town. You drove into Boise a couple hours round trip. I'll do it. So I finally nailed down Joel for an interview. And he is such an awesome guy. And this is just such a fascinating interview because this is someone who's worked for the National Geographic for 30 years It is someone who has a dream job and I wanted to get the dirt. I wanted to get the, what is the reality of working for the National Geographic? And Joel was just, he was awesome. He provided excellent insight. So if you are interested in working for the National Geographic or interested in becoming a photographer or working with animals or saving the environment in any capacity, this is the podcast for you. Now I have to plug our Patreon member only interview. So if, I don't know if you're new to the show, but I do an after show for our Patreons only. It's like this after interview show with all of my guests. So you are definitely going to want to become a Patreon to listen to the after show with Joel because I ask him just really fun things, including, you know, what's the most difficult animal he's ever photographed, his favorite place to be in the world. We also talk back and forth about just living out here in the West. And you guys, it's just really, really good. So I encourage you, if you want to help support the show, join our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash animals to the backs. I will include a link in the show notes. It's very, very cheap. It's like $10 a month and all the fees go towards this podcast. As you know, this is a labor of love and we just, you know, in exchange for helping to support the show, we are I'm offering, you know, exclusive Patreon only interviews. So I encourage you to check that out. Okay. With that said, let's get to it. Please welcome to the show, famous National Geographic photographer, Joel Sartori. Joel Sartori from the National Geographic. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good to be here Okay, Animals to the Max. Animals to the Max. So I've been wanting to get you for so long and your team, like they were so nice they got back to me, but they were like, yeah, Joel's way too busy for this. And then you actually called me. Can you tell the listeners what happened? Yeah, you had a couple of species in your collection that I needed for the photo arc. And because you, I, I what did I drive to Cascade, Idaho that that day uh-huh. to yep. photograph grouse? And you lived in Melba, which is like 45 minutes to an hour away each way. The only way I was going to get your two species photographed was if you drove them to me, to my Airbnb. Then we worked masked and distanced across the living room. That was the only way. And I said, I'll do your podcast in exchange for you doing this. And here we are today because you you took two hours out of your life, three hours to get that shoot done. So I'm really grateful. Well, I'll tell you. So my version of the story is I got this out of state number from Nebraska and I was like, I cannot deal with spam. I hardly ever answer my phone these days. And I get a voicemail and says, Hey, this is Joel Sartori from the national geographic. You might have a few animals I'd like to photograph. And I was like, wait a second. It was, it was just so surreal. And of course I jumped at that opportunity and I was, yeah. So I'm so happy we were able to provide a couple of the animals. Excellent. Yeah. It worked out great. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah. So tell the audience really quick. You've been working with the National Geographic for over 20 years, correct? 30. 30? Oh, my Uh, God. 30 years. 30 years. Take me back. And if people, if listeners are not familiar, can you talk a little bit about the photo arc really quick and why you are working for the National Geographic? Sure. Sure. So the first 17, I worked in newspapers for six years out of college. And then uh, I got a... um, Basically got an offer to go to Geographic and interview, um, and and uh, 
that was 17, I did set, what did I do? 17 years working, shooting uh, field stories, field assignments for National Geographic Magazine. Then my wife got sick about 17 years ago, 16 years ago, and she got breast cancer. And so I stayed home for a year to take care of her and our little kids. And well, and then she's fine today. And that's, we've been married like 35 years now. But, but back then I needed, I, I wanted to have some sort of a reset because it was not easy on our marriage with me being gone most of the year. And, and so I thought about the work of Audubon who painted lots of native birds and a few that he knew would go extinct because of European settlement. Uh, Edward Curtis, the famed uh, native American photographer who was pretty sure that the European settlement again was just going to really alter the way of life of Native Americans and spent his entire adult life as well, giving his kind of full measure of devotion to documenting 88 tribes across the American West, uh, thanks to a grant. And so I thought, you know, I, I've seen so many small animals, Corbin, that, you know, minnows, little minnows and, and dace and darters and sparrows and toads and newts, things that are not going to make it. Uh, really, if people keep crushing the landscape and and taking all the water, especially freshwater species, man, they're just they're, you know people are going to overappropriate the water for irrigation and agriculture and um, yeah. So when Kathy got better, I decided to try to start doing portraits of all the animals I could on black and white backgrounds, using studio lighting to bring out true color, and the black and white backgrounds eliminate distraction allow us to look the animals right in the eye and um, and really have that eye contact that we as primates need to connect. And then, um, uh, yeah, just it gives an equal voice to everything because with no size comparison, the mouse is every bit as a, big as an elephant. And that's fantastic. And, and so many of the little species live in muddy water or under the soil or in leaf litter or high up in the trees We'll never get a good look at them. We'll never know they existed. In fact, a lot of the species I photographed, they've never been photographed well before, if at all, alive. Uh, they're photographed in museum collections by some grad student that's studying a certain type of grouse, you know, and they use mu museum skins from 100 years ago. So a lot of these animals, this is their one and only chance to have their stories told, and it's a big honor, big responsibility, and... We think the target is about 20,000 species that are in the accredited zoos and aquariums of the world. Wow. We're at about 10,500 now. We're actually over that. We're nearing 11,500 because I did a, almost 1,000 species of insects over the summer and fall in six states, working outdoors, safe and masked and distanced and all that. But these are insects that just add to the biodiversity of the photo arc. They're not really part of that targeted 20,000 number at zoos. Yeah, and I really like the photo art. First of all, if, if any of the audience wants to check out your photos, I mean, simply they could go to your website, but I got introduced to you because I would go on the National Geographic to learn about animals. They have a large right. online presence. And right. the majority of the photos they use, there's a little photo credit. <laughs> and that photo credit will say Joel Sartori from the photo arc. Yeah, if it's a if it's there if it's an animal that's on a clean black or white background, usually, yeah, not always, but usually. Yeah, and I also I think I came across you in 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 the magazine, and I just was so fascinated. So you have photographed nearly eleven thousand five hundred species of animals. Yes, yes, from ants to elephants. That's right. From yes. ants to elephants. Okay, so and you started this. So you've been working for National Geographic for over thirty years. When did you start the photo arc? 
the photo arc started right after Kathy started to get better. I did hybrid stories, you know, uh-huh. Corbin, where I was in the field okay. doing amphibian decline. Well, I'd show that the frogs dead from chytrid fungus in the high Sierras in California. At spring thaw, they would accumulate, you know. Um, I would photograph sea turtles nesting on the beach in Equatorial Guinea, but I'd also bring along my black and white backgrounds and try to do portraits as well. So I did kind of hybrid stories for a few years. Now it's just photo arc all the time, and that's been about 16 years now. So the two overlap, the field stories and photo arc overlapped for a while. And um, yeah, now it's just photo arc all the time. That's it. Wow. Okay. So can we just, I want to go way back. Thank you for telling us a little bit about photo art because a lot of people listening are like, I mean, and I've even told you, you have a dream job. I mean, you work for the national geographic. Anybody in the animal industry would say that that's, I mean, that's the pinnacle of success. I got to tell you about national geographic. I've worked there right for about 30 years, maybe a little bit more, always as a contractor. And today we're grant funded. So they're fabulous in that respect. Um, I, I pinch myself every time I walk across the th- floor when they're open, you know, again, because of COVID, we haven't done that lately, but there's a big bronze relief map of the floor that gets polished every day. And over your head is a range map of, of uh, the, you know, Mount Everest and all the mountains around it, up in the ceiling and Jane Goodall's face is on the elevator oh. door, closing open. It's a very cool place and no agenda. They just expect you to be a good journalist. I never, in all those stories, I've had you know, like 35 stories in the magazine now. I've never had anybody tell me how to do it or what to do or an axe grind ever. I mean, they're just they're just pros and they, they have a very high bar. You know, there's a great saying, we can't publish your excuses, Joel. And um, so your pictures got to be good. They got to be informative. They have to move the needle. They should be surprising. They should be educational. They trust us to be a journalist. It really ruins you for working anywhere else. But... Having said that, you were saying, God, what a dream job, how fun it is. Yes. You didn't say how fun, you didn't say how fun it is yet, but usually people do. Nick, <laughs> Nick, Nick Nichols, who's one of my idols in photography, natural history photography, he said, it's not fun, it's work. It is work. And it, you put a lot of pressure on yourself because there's no boss in the field with you to boss you around until you get out of bed at four in the morning. It is work. It is not vacation. We're not going there to have a good time. In fact, at the end of the day, I'm just very relieved that nothing got hurt. Uh, I didn't get hurt. No animals got hurt. The assistants are okay. I'm just relieved to go to bed because we got to get up early and do it all again the next day. And so it's not fun. If people want to have fun and see exotic places, they should save their money from their day job and they should go on vacation. They shouldn't get a job with National Geographic. In fact, one other story. (laughs) The, 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 at the time, the associate director of photography, great guy, he, I, I went in to interview with him many years ago, you know, like back in the late 80s. And I sat on his couch and I'd gotten a terrible head cold and had a splitting headache and it was raining hard outside. I got a cold from stress and a headache from stress. And I walked down the hallway with my little book of pictures from the Wichita Eagle in Kansas and I sat on his couch and I remember the interview was going so poorly. I just had no personal affect. I had no defenses. I just felt terrible. And I remember seeing all the pictures on the walls of the hallway. There's Brandenburg's white wolf jumping onto an ice floe. And there's, uh, you know, Steve McCurry's Afghan girl with the emerald eyes. Mm. And I got pictures of cows and stuff in my for- portfolio and cowboys, you know, just <laughs> sad. So I sat on his couch and I didn't say anything. It was just this schlumpy lump in a JCPenney suit. And- <laughs> 
And it was growing dark. It was the end of the day. And he kind of, you know, he started opening his mail, his physical mail. Forgot I was there, I think. He went over to the door, got his coat, went, shut off his light, and I kind of cleared my throat so he wouldn't forget I was there. He said, yeah, well, it's the end of the day. It's time to go. Hey, why should I hire you anyway? He's kind of a gruff guy, big guy. I said, I don't know, Ken. I, I, I said, I don't know, Mr. Koberstein. I, I don't like people that much, and I hate to travel. <laughs> so years later, he and I became good friends, still are. Years later, we were at lunch, and I said, what? Do you remember that interview? He says, not really. What happened? <laughs> I said, I got this letter in the mail from you two weeks after that meeting, that terrible meeting, that was on National Geographic um, watermarked paper, cream color. You hold it up to the sun. I remember standing in my yard in Hayesville, Kansas, holding this letter up to the sun, and there's the, there's the map of the world with the geographic symbol in it, in the, in the watermark of the paper milled into the paper and said, we'll be calling on you, count on it. It's like, what? Wow. And, and I said, what was the deal? He said, well, what, what happened? And I said, well, you said, why should I hire you? He said, oh yeah, I asked that of everybody. And I remember, he said, now I remember what you said. You said, you know, I don't really like people that much and I don't like to travel either, something like that. And I said, yeah. And I, but I don't like people that much. I hated crowds. I'm a guy from Nebraska. I don't like big crowds, you know. No, nothing yeah. about it. He said, you know, I asked that question to everybody and you were the first one to answer it the opposite of everybody else. They all, all the rest of the job candidates said, I love to travel and I love people. And he said, well, I'm not paying people to have a good time. I'm not go in the field, get the job done. And the meter's running every day you're out there. Even when they had really giant, endless budgets, the meter's running. He said, you had a young wife at home. You were, you know, basically a hardworking guy from Nebraska, very energetic, very driven and focused. He said, I, I just thought you'd work hard to get back to that cute wife of yours. And you did. You always did. And I said, yeah, that's right. I didn't want, I can't stand to waste anything. I can't, I can't even waste other people's money. There's no way. He said, yeah, that's why. What are you having for lunch? That was the end of the discussion, you know? Wow. So, yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was just, I was being honest. I, I don't really like to, I wish I could shoot everything in the photo arc right here in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I live, but I can't. So, um, yeah, I don't like to travel that much and, and, and crowds, you know, airports and crowd, big crowds. Uh, but, you know, eventually I worked into the position of just doing a lot of natural history stories, mainly with Kathy Moran, uh -huh. uh, who's just there, the, one of the best that's ever lived. And, um, also became good friends with you become good friends with every editor you work with i cannot tell you how professional and grand the people are there they're just fantastic in turn everybody everybody so i i um, really uh, i i did can't say i liked the work because i look at my past stories now and think god that was a lot of work holy cow i look at that look at the photo arc and think that because it is but I also think what a remarkable experience, you know, to to have worked with the people more than traveling, but to have worked with the people and to to uh, have a, you know, maybe a body of work that helped move the move the needle of conservation a bit. I mean, mm -hmm. that's really kind of the goal, isn't it? To try to help make the world better than when you entered it. Yeah, yeah. I am so happy you brought this up because I and I kind of just fell along the same lines because I was like, you have this dream job, you're traveling, but 
it's mm. probably i'm happy you say you kind of pulled the curtain back and said hey th- this is this is work i'm not on a vacation drinking my ties on the beach no. um <laughs> like- part of the day the best part of the day is dinner because a lot of times we'll skip lunch to get to keep going and get i mean if we're at a at a zoo in uh in, in in Indonesia, and they've got 40 birds we got to get done that day. I'm not going to stop and have a sandwich. I mean, a sandwich yeah. would cost me two birds. We want to get every animal documented as quickly as we can. We don't know if we'll ever have a chance at them again. Likely not. We just want to we want to hurry up and get done. And then after we're all done and we've left the zoo, and most zoos are closed at dark. Mm-hmm. In the tropics, that means about 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. We can go have a nice dinner. Dinner is definitely the best part of the day. Yeah. Because it's the day is done, everything went well, uh, and we need to get back and caption, make sure our captions are correct, make sure the, full, the file's all ingested correctly, that we can do a little editing and go to sleep and do it again the next day. So it's just a grind. Yeah. My family doesn't really want to go with me. Uh, my, my son Cole goes with me quite a bit on the foreign trips, but it is not, it's not fun. It is just not fun. I mean, it is, it is work. But, you know, I can't gripe. I've seen literally families in Madagascar – Little kids even breaking rocks in the hot sun to make big chunks of granite into road gravel. I do not have anything to complain about. I'm just trying to get across to your listeners that that it is it is work. It is it is work. You know, it's like a a pianist. You yeah. know, I, was, I once was a guest speaker on a cruise ship up the Amazon, and there was a concert pianist on there, and she had to give two shows that week, two shows in in seven days as I had to do two talks in seven days and also coach people on how to use their cameras. Well, I got to know this lady. <clears throat> She'd practice every day for two hours in the auditorium when the doors were locked. I'm like, you've been doing this how long? She said, I don't know, 25 years. I said, why, why, why are you practicing for two hours a day? Don't you know those stuff? She says, you have, to, you have to stay on top of it. I said, so this is a job. She said, oh yeah, it's a job and one I take very seriously. So I do too. Yeah. yeah, and I can attest to that. Trying to book you on the show, and then when you when you were here in Idaho, we were texting back and forth, and you're like, "Okay, I'm going to be in Cascade for two hours, and I have this time blocked, and I might have to run out to Greenleaf, and then maybe I can squeeze you in here, yeah. and then I can only do the evening." It was very like, and I mean, yeah, yeah. it was just like, holy crap! It. I yeah. produce it too because if I don't produce it, why would I want to belabor it by going through an intermediary? Yeah. Uh, Sometimes I do, like for foreign trips, especially where I don't speak the language, I have to, or I use Google Translate. But uh, really, really, um, it's such a luxury when I have a shoot producer who really understands the project and knows what I need. And in England and Europe, I have that, and actually in Indonesia as well, in our taxonomist, a guy named Pierre de Chaban, and another guy named Nayer out of Bristol, England, who helps produce all the British stuff. But, but for U.S., yeah, it's, it's me. And I, I really want to dig in with you and try to figure out what subspecies is it of prehensile tail skink that you have, Corbin. And you look at the follow-up afterwards, we're still not sure. It could be a mix because a lot of zoos at first, when they brought animals into collections, they didn't really keep things separate. If it kind of looked the same, they bred them. Uh-huh. And so it, it, it's without knowing the provenance or where an animal came from or its ancestors, we can't really get to the true lineage of the animal, so it remains at species level. But it looks different enough from the one we had that we're going to keep it on its own line in the in the on our master list of species shot, and it'll go into the photo arc with the with what we know about it in the caption. And um, but yeah, the shoot is the start of the relationship usually. 
like having kids with somebody. You <laughs> forever linked to them yep. until somebody dies. And so we, we consider the shoot to be the start of the relationship because then we go out and when we do publish these things, whether it's in Geographic Magazine, uh, books, uh, building projections, uh, web, whatever, we want you to use the pictures too, however you need to. Um, um, we want the pictures to just basically get lift and fly around the world, you know, and, and try to save species and help people that helped us. Um, we're, we're really looking to, um, we're really looking to make sure that uh, we always stay in touch with you in case you get something out of, else interesting, that we can give you credit, that we can give the animal its, its voice and talk about conservation threats or good people doing good work with them to breed them or build back up habitat or protect existing habitat. So the shoot is the smallest part of it because we're a long-term archive. We're forever, a forever archive, whatever that means, till people blow themselves up with nuclear weapons. We're, we're, we're that. Yes. Yeah. Massive archive of stuff that you can access. And that's, you know, yeah. that's what we do. And hey, I wanted to mention too this box. Yes, what's box? this box? Yes. Okay. This is the famed shooting tent. We use a variety of them. We go through a few each year. White liner in there, right? Sometimes the black liner. Close it up, put your tarantula in there. That was the other species we did was a Brazilian black tarantula or something, right? Some, some tarantula, which, no, a Panay blue tarantula. A Panay blue tarantula. Yeah, and so for listeners, if you're wondering what happened, a couple of my animals I had, including my monkey-tailed skink, and a tarantula I had, a blue panay tarantula, they were interested in featuring in the photo arc. And I was shocked, like two of my species, and I was like, I didn't even, they're kind of on the back burner. You know what I mean? And so anyway, I'm just so happy we were able to help. Right. We've done the gorillas and the giraffes already. So you didn't have any of those. So we No, we had no so, gorillas. So the lens goes in here. It's great. We have a big tent as well, really big for pheasants and flamingos. You put the lens in, that's all they see. They don't see me. We're not talking during the shoot. Um, and then we light them up. So here's what we use. This is called a, uh, it's a, it's a big strobe head by Ellen Crumb. It is, we have this, this modifier on the front of a softbox. And this modifier shoots the light straight into the, into the box or or onto the subject, whatever it is. If it's a rhino, we station these these fabulous Ellen Chrome heads around the room, always out of reach of the animal so they can't pull the lights down. So this is the head. That's the head. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it's just, it's a thousand watt seconds of beauty. It's what it is. Wow. They're really durable. I don't recommend dropping them, but they, they, and they don't, you know, they don't suggest it at the manufacturer, but they are really tough for transporting on airlines. They're in a padded case, but what we need is something that works when we get there and works in any climate. And the nice thing is that, that these are monolights so that each has its own power pack. I worked in, what got me to switch to monolights was many years ago. I went to India where they have, sometimes the power isn't, is surgy. It's not really regulated that tightly. Mm -hmm. And I had a I had a system that went off one power pack. So all five heads plugged into a central power pack. Joel plugs it in and immediately on the first frame of the first shoot, poof, a big mushroom shaped cloud of brown smoke pops out of the thing. It, it's on fire. Oh, no. And the shoot's over because oh. that's the only power pack. Well, if you use a mono light. You've got four chances if you bring four lights to burn these up, but you don't want to. I use surge protecting power strips now. 
and voltage inverters if I have to, but these go from 110 to 220 or 230 or 240 even. So they'll handle power all over the world, which is amazing and great. So we'll put this one back in here. And yes, and then we use, um, Use Nikon D850s, really nice file size. Nikon Z6 to do a little bit of video. We've got a video arc now. Okay. And um, and off we go to the races where we uh, we can photograph a let's say a, um, a rare sparrow in that tent. In we're not shooting like paparazzi. It's maybe 10, 12 frames on black, same on white. Uh, the animal stays in there. We can pull one background out and leave it in there on the other background so the bird doesn't have to be handled again or the little mammal or whatever. And maybe it's five minutes on each color if that. And if the animal's uh, stopping to eat, like I did uh, prairie dogs in in eastern Utah last week. And um, these prairie dogs love to eat uh, peanuts. And so and they bark at me and stuff. So we took our time with those. I mean, it, they were eating most of the time. And um, you know, maybe that was a half hour per animal, but it's, it's a really great way of containing things. And then for bigger animals, we'll use, we'll have the zoo prep a space, paint a room black, paint a room white, including the floor. We went to Hogel Zoo in Utah and just did that. And, um, for a Hartman's, Hartman's mountain zebra, oh, okay. type of zebra with its full, its new full and got them on white. And so it's, it's just a lot of work for zoos if they have to do big animals, small animals, much quicker. I think one of my favorite photos, the I believe it was a Sumatran rhino from the Cincinnati Zoo. Was that it? Yeah. That, you, yes. that was, I mean, yeah. can we talk yeah. about that shoot? That was just one of the rarest animals on the planet. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, I photographed there a couple times for rhinos, once for the photo arc and once just of the animal, the mom, of the adult female I photographed for the photo arc, the mom had just had that baby, Suki, Suchi, I think was the name. And, um, and they're both gone now, but uh, there are still a few in a, in a single pen in Indonesia, uh -huh. breeding pen, breeding facility, and they've had young, so it ain't over, but they're, they're, they're down pretty low, you know, a few animals. Um, the, the thing is, I meet a lot of animals like that. I meet uh, a lot of, frogs and small mammals, birds that are just really down to nothing. It doesn't make me depressed, Corbin. It makes me uh, fired up. I do not want to see extinction happen. And that is really the goal, which we haven't talked about yet. Sure. What is the goal? What is the point? It's not just to create the world's largest obituary of what we're squandering uh, on our way to 11 billion people or whatever is going to end up. Mm -hmm. It is to create, it is to create awareness and inspire people to take action. How can we save what's in our own backyards? What can we do to make the world better with our time here? And this is what really interests me. We figure that each animal, of course we're archiving it, but we figure each animal is an opportunity to get people into the tent of conservation and really think about how do my actions impact the world around me? Here's a great, and, and people want, we, we can inspire them. Now let's tell them what things they can do if they're interested. Here's a great one. Plant a pollinator garden. Wherever you live in the United States or abroad, chances are you could really enhance habitat for insects and animals that eat insects 
just by planting a pollinator garden. We have done so in our backyard. It's gonna triple in size this summer. We've done so in the front yard and the backyard and the side yard at our office across town here in Lincoln. Pollinator garden is both nectar bearing plants and milkweed for monarch butterflies. We don't plant lots and lots. I mean like a billion milkweed stems across this country in the next 10 years or less. We will lose the monarch butterfly, largely. So uh, the nectar bearing plants Again, plants native to your area that produce pollen and, and nectar, which is the fuel for these animals to survive and keep going. We, uh, this insect shoot that I did last year to keep the photo arc numbers going, holy cow, I, I probably pulled over 100 species of insect just out of my own backyard with sheets at night, you know, and lights yeah, and yeah. use nets, just on our vegetable garden and in our small pollinator garden. I had no idea they were here. My my porch lights at night, it's not just moths, it's all sorts of things in every color of the rainbow. Really incredible. They're waiting here, they just need a break. Farming is so massive now and has to be to feed the world mm -hmm. that they're mm -hmm. using chemicals on the land that really do um, make it impossible for insects to thrive. And that's intentional and I get that. But we do have to set aside some habitat where animals can can make it. We have to save water in the rivers. Forget the animals for a minute. What are people gonna do if the rivers all dry up? So the other thing people can do, real easy, saves the money, puts money in their bank account. Quit pouring poison all over your ground. Quit allowing your city or county or state to keep pouring poison all over the ground. It ends up making people sick. It kills off animals. It kills off amphibians, especially in fish, mussels, we, we have to quit poisoning ourselves with, with insecticide and fungicide and even fertilizers. Quit watering your lawn. When you water, you gotta mow it more, which throws more carbon into the air. And who wants to have to mow more? So I would say uh, just simple things. Insulating your home well puts money in your bank account. We insulated an old rental house that we have. We paid for that insulation in nine months and it makes us money every month. It's incredible. Do you realize so, how many people are listening who are like, wait, I don't have to mow my lawn anymore? <laughs> this is great. Tell that to my HOA. <laughs> we're already at, at only the plants that can handle never being watered. They get mowed, but never being, we don't, we haven't mowed in years. And by the way, our lawn looks better than most of our neighbors because we're never susceptible to these common, uh, super chemically treated lawn diseases like sod webworm. Mm -hmm. We don't see that because our lawn's a mixture of grass and clover it's green when it rains it's brown in the summer more brown in the summer it is grass it will grow back it won't kill all of it if yeah. it's dry it's just a matter of of thinking about the fact that you want your kids to be able to run in the grass you want your pets to not get sick you don't want to send that those chemicals downstream because they will move when it rains those chemicals will move into the ground supply into the groundwater and they'll end up being consumed by people and pets down river so we're really big into saying you know there's a million things you can do right from home you don't have to be an elephant researcher to say that you help save the world in fact eat less meat reduce reuse and recycle what you buy um, realize that that tomato or that strawberry you're buying in the dead of winter had to be trucked in, you know, mm -hmm. most likely you're burning lots of diesel fuel to get it to you from California or South Texas. Realize that how you spend your money is a form of voting. 
every time you break out your purse or your wallet, you're saying to a retailer, I approve of this, do it again and again and again. That's the power to tear the world up or to help build it up if you buy sustainably. So we go on and on, but if people have any questions on things they can do in their area, I've got a lot of ideas. That's about all I think about. <laughs> and um, they can always get me at joelsartori.com. I won't write back war and peace. <laughs> but it'll usually link people up with some uh, website or phone number or my thoughts on, okay, I'm glad you're concerned about this. The other thing I, I wanted to mention is that finding a purpose-driven life, even if you're retired, is a great way to live. It gives you reason to get out of bed in the morning. It's fun and interesting. I'm very excited to get out of bed uh, every morning just because I like to save things. I like to save species. I like to save historic buildings here in town. We've got several on the National Register of Historic Places that we've renovated and constantly need upkeep, but I don't mind. The, the deal is if, if you can think of something you're very passionate about, maybe it's homelessness, maybe it's hunger issues, maybe it's spaying dogs and cats or insisting that your county not mow the, the ditches in the country when ground nesting birds are trying to fledge their chicks. Don't mow at those critical times. Maybe it's, it's in plastics recycling. Um, I don't know, whatever you're passionate about that'll make the world better, stick with it, be persistent and become an expert in it. Become somebody that other people come to for guidance. And man, it's satisfying. I mean, at the end of your days, in your declining hours, I think that you really wanna be able to look in the mirror and smile. If you're just hoarding your money and you're gonna give it to your kids, they're just gonna buy a bigger boat. You know, they're just gonna blow it. They didn't earn it. Do something great. Name a, buy a piece of prairie or get a conservation easement on a forested hillside and name it after your parents, whatever. Put it in a conservation easement. Do, do something that, that just makes you feel good. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. There's so much more to life than television and politics, you know? It, there's so much more you can be doing. When I see my kids watching endless amounts of TV and I kick them out, you know, they're all basically grown now, but they still come over here and lay around to watch cable. I say, you know, you were watching somebody doing something that's far less interesting than you could be doing today, right now, here. You're, that's, that's so boring. You're watching somebody make a cake? <laughs> Those <laughs> God, why not do something that actually counts? Why do you, why do you make me a cake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, but you know what I'm saying, like it's, yes. we should get out, get out and move about in the world and do good things. I mean, maybe it's working for hospice. Maybe it's helping at the local zoo. Maybe it's just helping with literacy or volunteering at the library or the hospital, just in gu guiding people around the hospital. Maybe it's being a docent at a zoo. I don't know. Just be it's a productive member of society. Something that makes you feel good that, you know, I mean, my, my folks and my grandparents didn't really do much when they retired, you know, uh -huh. they watched a lot of television and uh, they were great people all, but there's, they, they, they all had a lot of years after they retired where they could have been doing something fulfilling, you know? And they talked about it as the thing, but they didn't pull the trigger. They didn't do it. Yeah, so. I think that's so inspiring. So at, out of 11,500 species, Joel, I have to ask you, 
what has been your favorite? favorite what is it you got I me mean, and don't give me the all i asked you this in person you're I like the that. next one i'm gonna shoot interview it's absolutely true it's the next one no okay give me one yeah. give me one that you were excited okay. about yeah you bet it's a female pine grosbeak at the wildlife rehab center of minnesota in st paul uh wait a female pine female grosbeak it's a type of songbird yeah really yeah saturday wow saturday oh. I'm going to photograph it. Okay, so is there an animal that... That's the next one, man. I was expecting like you to say this African elephant or the last Javan no, rhino. Yeah. No, if you look into the eyes of a praying mantis, you realize there's a world there. They're smart. They can walk upside down on anything. Okay. They, they're able to camouflage perfectly. They're able to ambush prey. They're able to find mates, get out of bad weather, live outside, I mean, like all these things that you and I couldn't do, they have made it through evolutionary time, hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of respect for them. And there's intelligence in all of this stuff or they wouldn't make it. You know, I don't know about jellyfish, coral, <laughs> anemones. I don't know. But they've made it in places I couldn't. Certainly when you get to frogs and reptiles and move on up to birds and then mammals, well, we know... For example, this prairie dog, this might make people think differently. The the white-tailed prairie dog that I just photographed that was eating peanuts in eastern Utah, right? In grain. They, she gave it greens too. This animal picks up picks up a nut with one hand, turns around and sits there and looks at me and just eats like he's having a snack watching a ball game. And I said, so how did you come to get this prairie dog? This is a lady that had these two prairie dogs in her home. She has a permit from the state of Utah to be a long-term care provider. Mm -hmm. She said, well, we have whitetail prairie dog town all around this, this village where I live here, out in the high desert. This one my daughter found basically on the edge of the prairie dog town, out in the sun, barely alive, as a little bitty baby. Hadn't really even opened his eyes hardly. So we rescued it. We sent it to a, a wildlife rehabber, a state-sanctioned wildlife rehabber. They got it raised back to health, and they're like, well, we can't re-release it because it didn't grow up in that prey dog town. So will you be the long-term caregiver? And this lady that I work with who has the, the prey dog now said, yeah, I've got one other prey dog, a Gunnison's prey dog, and they'll just kind of hang out together, and they'll have a good life here. I said, well, why couldn't you release it back in the prairie dog town? She said, well, it didn't grow up speaking that di that dialect of prairie dog. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, and I kind of knew what she meant, but I wanted to hear. Prairie dogs, they don't just yip when they see danger. They're talking. These yips, if you look at sonograms, they're different and they contain information. Um, and so each prairie dog town complex is is has its own dialect if you don't grow up in that prairie dog town you, and you can't speak it, you will be seen as an intruder and you will be killed or at least kicked out so a coyote or a hawk will get you. So it's a big deal that you grow up in that prairie dog town. And they've done studies that are pretty conclusive, especially with prairie dogs in Colorado where they have a lot of prairie dogs around Denver, um, that they've sent researchers and grad students through these prairie dog towns and the yips don't just say danger, they're not just saying danger, although they are. They're saying tall guy in red jacket yep. moving northwest fast. Or they'll say coyote killed one of us. No danger. 
but get down low just in case because he's got a he's got a prairie dog in his mouth. These prairie dogs are able to basically form sentences and really communicate exactly what's going on. You know, whether the hawk's flying by or actually circling, looking to dive bomb them and grab one of them. So it's a complicated world out there and we don't give animals any credit at all. So that's why I say the next one, because mm. they're amazing and they're intelligent and they're looking at me and they're trying to size me up. Am I going to do them harm in some way? And then when they realize I'm not, then they just start eating peanuts. That's awesome, Joe. Well, listen, thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to continue the conversation over to our Patreon only after show. Uh, for anyone listening now, where can they follow you? And by the way, you have an, so can I just say one thing? You have an impressive 1.5 million followers on Instagram. And what did you tell me in person the other day? I don't post anything. <laughs> You've never logged on because I said, Joel, can you give me a shout out? I mean, just get and you were like, oh, I, I don't I, do it. I looked at Instagram, but I go on my computer and I type in Instagram Joel Sartori just to make sure that the words are right. I, I proof <laughs> everything. I proof <laughs> everything. I've never posted anything or follow it. I'm well, already working 100 hours a week, man. I don't have time to get swallowed up and look at the, <laughs> the mean comments on something. I don't – I get – the last time I did, I was on a road trip with my daughter, Ellen, and my wife. Uh-huh. And my daughter, Ellen, and somebody, and a fourth person, basically another employee, we were driving across Nebraska. And my daughter, Ellen, made some comment about some nasty comment somebody made. So I grabbed her phone, and she yelled, no, no, mom, grab it from him, grab it from him. So I look at that comment, and being a journalist, within 10 minutes, I was calling that person on the phone oh. to say, I don't, I think you might be misinformed about this, <laughs> the place where I'm going. The, and the people backed down. They were like, oh, geez, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know. They were like calling this rehab center for dolphins that have lost a fin to a boat propeller collision that have to be taken care of and fed fish four times a day and are very expensive. They were, they were saying, oh, this place is selling dolphins. Do you really think people want to buy dolphins that are missing fins, that have a hard time staying buoyant, that they have to have care all the time? No, this is a place that was doing the right thing. So I said, I'm going down there to photograph a pygmy killer whale that they have that was a beach wash up that they're rehabilitating to release. I will, I will call you back and give you a report, but I think you're misinformed. I've not heard anything bad about this place, just that they do good work on a limited budget. And I did call the guy back. And then I wrote <laughs> gave him a report. But Ellen said, Dad, there are thousands of these comments. You should never read them. Because I want to fix problems. This guy was talking out of the side of his mouth. He didn't, he'd never been there. He's just recirculating nasty things. And he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. I mean, I got to know him. I like him very much, respect him very much. He just had heard this about this place. So that's why I don't, I don't go there. I provide the raw materials to other people, like, Graf, like my social media manager, and they've Feed the beast. They get it out there. And it looks good. So you can go follow Joel at Joel Satori on Instagram. I'll put the link in the show notes. They can visit your website, correct, if they want to check out the photo arc. Yeah, and they can go to geographic2photoarc.org. There's a nice site there. We have these endless scrolls with thousands. All the pictures are there. It takes hours to just scroll down. Perfect. So. Perfect. Well, Joel, thank you so much. Will you join me on the okay. after party? You ready for it? I'm psyched to take Animals to the Max. Let's do it! Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. 
Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.